Okay, um, we need to dig right in. So if you have a Bible, open it up to Judges chapter 6. I'm not going to gussy today up with a whole bunch of funny little stories or anything because we've got three chapters that we're going to get through. I'm going to read all three chapters. We're going to go 6, 7, and 8. You need a Bible in front of you because there's going to be a lot of words on the screen if they choose to put them all on the screen because we've got like 43 different slides today. And so open up your, your church app and have that ready to go, today's live notes, or your Bible, or both, something along those lines. We've got a lot of blanks I want to ask you to fill in today so that uh, basically here's the deal. We're just going to school, and I want to ask you to join me in it. For the past couple of weeks, we've been dealing with the idea of what it means to be a hero, particularly what it means to be a hero in God's sight and what it means to be a hero for the people around us. And there's this passage, this book in the Old Testament called the book of Judges. And the word judge really could mean, for the ancient Hebrews, could mean leader, could mean savior, could mean judge, or it could mean something else, even with more authority. And so I've been using the word heroes to describe the people we see in the book of Judges. The problem is that heroes always have a bad side. There's always a dark side to every hero. In fact, if you're watching a movie, then and there's a hero, and he has no dark side whatsoever, or she has no dark side whatsoever, you are watching a children's movie because everybody knows that real human beings have a dark side too. Last week, we read a hero story where the hero did not have a dark side, but today we find one who definitely does. We're going to be reading the story of Gideon. It's one of the standard Sunday school stories, and perhaps you have heard the story through chapter 7, and today you're going to hear chapter 8 too. It ends on a very dark note But we're going to get both some encouragement and some discouragement today. So jump with me into Judges chapter 6. This is the first judge who has both a military side and a spiritual side to his story. And so we pick it up. Chapter 6, verse 1. It says, The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of of the Midianites. I'm going to just pause there again because I usually do right after I read the first verse and remind you that the whole story of the book of Judges is a repetition of the same thing over and over again. It is, first, God brings the people some blessing. Then, they turn their backs on God and do their own thing. Then, God brings them some sort of hardship or oppression. Then, they turn back to God and say, oh God, we really love you, we need your help. Then God rescues them. And then that rescue is his blessing that they then turn away from. And the cycle repeats over and over and over again. They turn their back on God. He allows them to enter hardship. And the lesson that I want us to keep remembering throughout this book study is that sometimes hardship is in our lives because we have turned our back on God. This is a pattern that God doesn't just do with the ancient Israelites. This is a pattern that repeats itself through history. Sometimes hardship enters into our lives because we have turned our back on God. We wander away from God. He brings hardship in to test us to see if we'll turn back to him. If we do turn back to him, he will bring us a rescuer and then we will probably turn our backs again. It's a cycle that repeats over and over. 
It never, it never really gets solved until God brings his son into the world and Jesus steps up to be the one savior for all time who can rescue us forever. But we still do the cycle. And it reminds us consistently of God's judges, his judgment, his justice, and his grace. In verse 1 of chapter 6, the Israelites did evil again in the eyes of the Lord. And for seven years, he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, uh, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. This is the way we do it. This is how it works with us. We go through some sort of hardship and then we finally, 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 after many, many, many years, we'll finally turn our attention back on God and say, oh God, save us. And he's like, why didn't you come to me beforehand and why did you ever leave me to begin with? Verse seven, when the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet. Ooh, this is different. We expect a savior, but we got a prophet the difference between a prophet and a savior is that a savior does the saving. The prophet tells us the problem. The prophet tells us why we're in the situation we're in. He sent them a prophet who said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hands of the Egyptians and I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. Write this down. This is your first set of blanks for today. The cause of their hardship was a lack of faithfulness. This is incredibly important for us to realize that God didn't just bring hardship into their lives because he's a mean God. He brought hardship into their lives to wake them up, to get their attention, to tap them on the shoulder and say, you have to come back to me. This is God saying the hardship is because you have forgotten me, because you've turned your back on me. I just want you to stay with me. The cause of their hardship was a lack of faithfulness. The reason that's important is that in the very next verse, set of verses, we're very soon going to see someone say, God, why have you done this to us? And the answer isn't given in those verses because the answer was given in these verses. Go ahead with me. We're going to find a guy named Gideon, and it begins in verse 11. It says this, the angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. One of my favorite lines in the Bible is this one here. I want you to write it down. It's simply this, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. It's what the angel of the Lord says to Gideon. There are just a lot of problems with it. First of all, let me give you the cool thing. 
The cool thing is that whenever you see in the Old Testament the angel of the Lord, the phrase the angel of the Lord, notice that it doesn't say the angels of the Lord. It says the angel. There is one particular angel. The other thing you need to know is that the word angel sometimes is translated angel to refer to a specific category of heavenly species that we call angels, but sometimes the word angel is actually translated to what it means, and what it means is messenger or sent one, someone who is a messenger of the Lord. And so here we see the angel, the single solitary messenger of the Lord. There is one messenger from the Lord above all the other messengers, and you need to know that this is is the same phrase that is used for the burning bush. Moses is standing in front of the burning bush, and he says, it says to us that the angel of the Lord was in the flames. And Moses speaks to the angel of the Lord and says, what is your name? And the voice comes back and says, Yahweh. If you were to skim ahead because you have a Bible and not just my app, or if you have the new version of the app where you can tap on it and see the whole context, you'll notice the phrase angel of the Lord and the Lord are interchangeable in this passage. The angel of the Lord and the Lord, all capitals, L-O-R-D, capital letters. That's when the Hebrew word is Yahweh behind it. And we just use the word Lord in its place. The angel of Yahweh and Yahweh, the messenger of Yahweh and Yahweh are the same. Just so that you know, this is the cool thing, just for you. This is bonus information. You didn't need to necessarily, you know, have this, but bonus information. Most scholars think that when the Old Testament uses the phrase, the angel of the Lord, it is referring to a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus himself. The second person of the Trinity, the word made flesh, is the messenger who comes to give the message to God's people. Now, What's interesting is that this angel shows up to Gideon and says a phrase that you already wrote down that I think is one of the most ludicrous phrases in the Bible because it's hard to understand it on the surface. The angel says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And my first question is, what do you mean mighty warrior? He is literally hiding in a wine press threshing wheat. Now, if you didn't pick up on that, you don't usually process wheat in a wine press. It's a very important thing for you to realize. Wheat is not processed in a wine press. That's where you process wine. It's not where you process wheat. And so the fact that he is processing his wheat in a wine press means one of two things. Either Gideon is shrewd and he's doing the thing that is the smartest so that he's keeping his wheat away from the Midianites. Or maybe not, because how do you process wheat other than taking the wheat that you've already gathered and you bash it on the ground and you smash other things on top of it and then you throw everything up into the wind so that the wind can catch the chaff and blow it away and the seeds will fall back down to the ground. And so threshing wheat always involves taking your wheat and throwing it way up in the air. And so clearly the Midianites, if they were scanning the land, they would see a cloud of wheat coming from nowhere and they would have gone after him. So maybe it's not that shrewd. Maybe it's just simply cowardice. It tells us very clearly that he is hiding from the Midianites. Either way, we don't know. Maybe it's shrewdness, maybe it's cowardness. Either way, it doesn't make sense for the angel of the Lord to say, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. But keep reading. Look what he says next, verse 13. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied. 
But if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? I told you it was coming. If the Lord is really with us, why are we dealing with all of this hardship and frustration and pain? Well, the answer was already given. You just didn't hear it. Why? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. This is, uh, this is Gideon saying, wait a minute. If you're saying God is with us, where with us is he? Because from my angle, it looks like he's abandoned us. From my angle, it looks like he's given up on us. How can you say the Lord is with us? My question was over the mighty warrior phrase. Gideon's question is over the Lord is with you phrase. Look what happens next. Verse 13. If the Lord is with us, he said, why has all this happened to us? Verse 14. The Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you before? But did you see? Who spoke in verse 14? The Lord turned to him. The Lord, Yahweh, turned to him and said. It's not the angel of the Lord. It's the Lord. See, in the same passage... One who is referred to as the messenger of God is later referred to as God. One who is referred to as the messenger of Yahweh is later referred to as Yahweh. And this isn't a voice that comes while the angel is standing near. And this isn't the angel who is acting like the voice of God because it says the Lord turned and said. See, I guess what you really need to see is in that previous verse where it says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. I asked the question, what's the, what's the deal with the mighty warrior? Gideon asks the question, how can you say the Lord is with you? And the angel is actually saying, I'm with you right now. I'm standing here in front of you and I am with you. And because the Lord is with him, then the words can be mighty warrior. The next phrase the angel or the Lord says to Gideon is this, go in the strength you have. I take so much comfort from that little phrase. God doesn't ask me to be stronger than I am, nor does he tell me I need to wait around until I feel stronger than I am. He tells me, I'm with you, therefore you're a mighty warrior, therefore you already have the strength that you need. Go in that strength, and I've got something for you. Look at verse 15. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. In verse 16, the Lord answered. Again, the Lord answered. I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. These three phrases, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior, go in the strength you have, and I will be with you. 
I want you to write them all down and I want you to have them on your heart. Because you see, what is going on here in this passage is something that you and I far too frequently can set aside for the times of the past, can set aside for people like Gideon, heroes like him. But notice, Gideon was a coward, or maybe a shrewd coward, but definitely hiding from the responsibilities that were out there. He was hiding from the responsibilities to follow God wholeheartedly. He was hiding from the responsibilities to stand up for his family. He was out there just hiding, doing the thing that he thought he could do. But in the midst of that, the angel of the Lord, actually the Lord, shows up to him. Perhaps a pre-incarnate expression of the physical, the physical life or experience of Jesus Christ himself standing there in front of him. And he says, I am with you. And that makes all the difference. I want you to put it kind of in a, in a mental concept like this. I'm going to put a chart up on the screen, and hopefully it'll, it'll relate to the uh, graphic on your screen as well in some fashion. But there are four lines that the angel says. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Go in the strength you have. I will be with you. And it forms like a sandwich where the two middle parts, they parallel each other. You are a mighty warrior, so go in the strength you have. And the two outer parts, they parallel each other. The Lord is with you, I will be with you. Those outer outer parts and the inner parts are two different sorts of concepts. And you might say, how can I be a hero? How can I be considered a mighty warrior? And I will say this, if the bookends are true for you, so is the middle. If the bookends are true for you, if God is with you and if God has promised to be with you, then you are a mighty warrior. So go in the strength you have. Now, I could spend a lot of time on this, but uh, you're going to hear the same thought over and over the rest of this series, where I'm going to repeatedly encourage you to realize that you are a hero, so go and do heroic things, but I don't have much time left because we're not even halfway through chapter 6, so let's keep going. I want to show you the rest of what's going on here, because the fascinating thing is that for the next series of verses, all the way through chapter 7, what we get is an interplay between Gideon and God, where Gideon does one thing. Usually he tests God and God responds to the test and then God tests Gideon and Gideon responds to the test. And they have this back and forth relationship that um, it's just an interesting story. So I'm going to read most of it. And as I read through it, I'm just going to drop little comments as we go through and you'll get a couple blanks to fill in along the way. Verse 17, Gideon replies, and here's his first test for the angel of the Lord. If I now have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it's really you talking to me. Please do not go away until until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And there's something just brilliantly sad and profound about this request. He says, if you really are the Lord, then don't leave. I'm going to go do something. And I'm going to come back. And if you're still here, then I know that you will be with me. See, the promise is I will be with you. The test is, will you really? And the Lord said, I will wait until you return. 
Gideon went inside, prepared a young goat, and from an ephah of flour he made bread without yeast. Putting the meat in a basket and its broth in a pot, he brought them out and offered them to him under the oak. Have any of you ever boiled a small animal, like a goat? It's not a process that takes, you know, five minutes in the microwave. This is a process that takes maybe an hour, two hours, three hours to really get this thing boiled down. I'm not exactly sure, but when he says to the angel of the Lord, don't leave until I come back, it takes him a long time. Sure, the bread was made without yeast, but the rest of this is going to take a while. Anyway, he brought them out and offered them to him under the oak. The angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened bread, place them on this rock and pour out the broth. And Gideon did so. Then the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread with the tip of his staff that was in his hand. Fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread, and the angel of the Lord disappeared. Zap! Just gone. When Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, Alas, sovereign Lord, I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace. Do not be afraid, you are not going to die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it the Lord is peace. To this day it stands in Ophrah of the Abiezrites. 23 and 24, something really interesting happened. The angel touches the rock, fire explodes and eats up all of the food. At the same time, poof, the angel of the Lord is disappeared. But did you notice, right after the angel has disappeared, and Gideon is overcome with anguish that he has met with an agent of God, it said, the Lord said to him. Did you notice? It said, the Lord said to him. Even though the angel of the Lord had just disappeared, Now, Gideon is all of a sudden able to hear the voice of the Lord without the mediating angel there. God has not left him, even though he has disappeared. It's an amazing little sequence there. God has not left Gideon, even though he disappeared. And Gideon is still with God. He worships him. So God is with Gideon. Gideon is with God. There is this mutuality of what's happening. They have what you might consider a relationship. And it's so amazing what happens next. The rest of the story of Gideon is standard Sunday school story. It's just, it's just a, a great situation. I'm going to continue to read through the rest of it. Here we go. Pick it up at verse 25. That same night, the Lord said to him, Take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old. Tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on the top of this height. Using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. So Gideon took 10 of his servants and did as the Lord told him, but because he was afraid of his family and the townspeople, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. Again, you get this picture of Gideon where he's a little bit nervous, a little bit scared. I'm going to do what God asked me to do, but I'm still just going to kind of do it in my own nervous, scared sort of way. Or maybe it's just smart. 
smart. Maybe he's just a shrewd kind of fellow. Verse 28, in the morning when the people of the town got up, there was Baal's altar demolished with the Asherah pole beside it cut down and the second bull sacrificed on the newly built altar. They asked each other, who did this? When they carefully investigated, they were told Gideon, son of Joash, did it. The people of the town demanded of Joash, bring out your son, he must die because he has broken down Baal's altar and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. But Joash replied to the hostile crowd around him. And in this measure, we get to understand that Gideon comes from a really smart family. And so maybe Gideon was pretty smart and shrewd because this is what his dad says. Are you going to plead Baal's Baal's cause? Are you trying to save him? Whoever fights for him shall be put to death by morning. If Baal really is a god, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. So because Gideon broke down Baal's altar, they gave him the name Jerob Baal that day, saying, let Baal contend with him. So here's Gideon's nickname. His nickname is Jerob Baal. And Jerob Baal means... um, He contends with Baal. And of course, the hint is, if he contends with Baal, and he's still alive, then Baal hadn't done anything about it. This is like a taunt, where Gideon's like, I messed with Baal, and he didn't do anything back. What do you think of that? So it's this little, little picture in his nickname that basically says, Baal is nothing because you can mess with him and he won't retaliate. Unlike God, <laughs> who uh, actually will hold you accountable. Let's keep going. We're in verse 33 now. Now all the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples joined forces and crossed over the Jordan and camped in the valley of Jezreel. Then the Spirit of the Lord came on Gideon again. We see the Spirit show up and it makes all the difference. The Spirit of the Lord came on Gideon and he blew a trumpet, summoning the Abiezrites to follow him. He sent messengers throughout Manasseh, calling them to arms and also into Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, so that they too went up to meet them. All of those are names of tribes of Israel. Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand as you've promised... Look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you said. And that's what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, Do not be angry with me. Let me make just one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece, but this time make the fleece dry and let the ground be covered with dew. That night God did so. Only the fleece was dry. All the ground was covered with dew. This is amazing. This is standard Sunday school story where they talk about how awesome God is, that he listened to Gideon and he did this awesome miracle. And that's generally the way they approach it. I find a lot of weird things about this passage still. Why is he using a threshing floor for this, this fleece? In my Sunday school class, the fleece was his welcome mat. And God had said something to, and Gideon had said something to God, basically make my welcome mat wet and the ground dry. But he's putting a fleece in a threshing floor. He clearly had a threshing floor. He just wasn't using it earlier. But I, I don't know. Anyway, the point is amazing that Gideon would say, God, I'm going to test you. And God says, I'll do it. And then Gideon does it again. And God does it. This is an interesting thing. There have been two times in my life when I have fleeced God. I mean, using fleece as kind of a metaphor for what Gideon did. Um, 
the time when I have given God a prayer that he could answer. You know what I mean? A lot of times we give God prayers that are prayers that we never really know if the answer has come. We sort of have to interpret whether or not the answer has come. You know, God, give me wisdom, and then we maybe later have wisdom. Or, or God, bring healing, and then maybe the person gets a little bit better, or maybe they get all the way better, and we, we say, yeah, God, thank you for bringing healing. But very few times do we say things like, God, would you just make my stuffed animal fall off of my shelf if you want me to do this thing? I did that in high school because I was confused about a decision, and I knew the story of Gideon, and I thought this was a this was a time to test it. And I prayed. I was like, God, there's a decision that I need to make. If you want me to make decision A, how about you make one of my stuffed animals fall off the shelf sometime, whenever, I guess. And would you believe later on that week I found a stuffed animal on the ground all by itself, just one? And I made the decision that I told God I would make, and it turned out to lead to some really interesting things. I don't know. There's been only a few times in my life when I have given God the kind of prayer that he could totally answer in an obvious way. And in almost every case, he comes through. I've I've not done it a lot because I'm afraid to. What What if I give God this thing and then I don't want to do the thing he wants me to do? How do I know it's really God? Maybe I'll ask him the second question. Back in Gideon's day, the extra interesting part of this is that God had already given his people a fleece method. You see, back in Moses' day, God had told him to establish a priesthood. And the priest would wear some robes and an ephod and a breastplate. And in the breastplate were two little things that were called the Urim and the Thummim. We don't really know what they were. They might have been like rocks or something. Uh, Imagine like a rock where one half is painted white, the top is white, and the bottom is black. And if you ask God a question, you drop the rocks, and and you could say, God, make both of them white if you want me to do this thing. And then you drop the rocks, and you've got a 25% chance of having them both be white. Um, uh, If they're both black or if they're opposite to each other, then the answer is undecided or no. And and some scholars think that that's the way the Urim and the Thummim worked, kind of like casting lots worked back in the old days. And we we don't really know. But God had given them a method to literally test him to find out his will. So when Gideon asks him this particular question, it's kind of understood and okay. Listen, before I go any farther, I just want to give you an opportunity to say, if you ever ask God to do something as obvious as this, you better be ready to do and act in response to what he says. And if that's the case, I can't make you any promises, but I think just maybe God will respond to you the same way he responded to Gideon. I'm not sure about all those miracles or anything like that. I really don't know. I've tried it a few times in my life and God has come through, but it's one of those places where I can't really give you a definitive answer. I will just say this. God was willing to play along. Gideon had a question and God brought an answer. But keep going. Verse 1 of chapter 7. Early in the morning, Jerob Baal, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Herod, 
The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Morah. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. Now announce to the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left while 10,000 remained. God said specifically, I don't want you to have a lot of people because then you'll think you get the credit. Then you'll think you deserve the victory. Then you'll think the victory was because of you. God says, I want you to know that this victory is coming from me. So get rid of as many men as you can. And 22,000 leave. Only 10,000 remain. But the Lord said to Gideon, there's still too many men. Take them down to the water and I will thin them out for you there. If I say this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, separate those who lap the water with their tongues as a dog laps from those who kneel down to drink. 300 of them drank from cupped hands, lapping like dogs. So they would scoop up the, with one or two hands and then they would lick the water out of their hands. And then the other ones got down on their knees and just stuck their faces in the water and sucked it up like um, on their knees drinking. So the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites home, but kept the 300 who took over the provisions and trumpets of the others. So that means they had enough trumpets and provisions for 10,000, maybe even 32,000. And now they're down to 300, but they have all the same amount of trumpets. They have all the same provisions that they had before, but there's only 300 men. They are well stocked. And they've got a whole lot of trumpets which is interesting because trumpets were usually used by just the leaders. Like not everybody had a trumpet. Usually only leaders would have trumpets. And so they would blow the trumpets to lead the crowd that they had following them. And so the trumpets were a leadership device. And now everyone's got a trumpet. That's, that's a little interesting. It's a little weird. I'm, I'm not exactly sure what that might mean, but I will just say this. Gideon had tested God. Now God had tested Gideon. God's like, okay, I want you to go to war with only 300. And now, now, God gives Gideon an amazing gift. Watch what happens next. God gives Gideon an amazing gift. It says this in the second half of verse 8. Now the camp of Midian lay below him in the valley. During that night, the Lord said to Gideon, get up, go down against the camp because I'm going to give it into your hands. If you're afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Pura and listen to what they're saying. Afterward, you will be encouraged to attack the camp. So he and Pura, his servant, went down to the outposts of the camp. The Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the other eastern peoples had settled in the valley thick as locusts. Their camels could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. Gideon arrived just as a man was telling a friend his dream. I had a dream, he was saying, around loaf of barley came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend replied, responded, this can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed down and worshipped. He returned to the camp of Israel and called out, get up, the Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands, dividing the 300 men into three companies. 
companies. He placed trumpets and empty jars in the hands of all of them with torches inside. Now every one of the men has a trumpet, but the gift God gave Gideon is an amazing gift. God just said, Gideon, I want you to know how terrified they are of you. And I want you to know that they think you are going to win and they think I'm going to give it to you. So Gideon now gives the trumpets and the torches to every single one of the men, not just the leaders. Every single one of them has it. And this is Gideon's shrewdness coming out because watch what happens next. Watch me, he told them, verse 17. Follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp blow yours and shout, for the Lord and for Gideon. Gideon and the hundred men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just after they had changed the guard. They blew their trumpets and broke the jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew the trumpets and smashed the jars, grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow. They shouted a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. While each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. And now you get the genius of what what God led Gideon to do. Because by putting the trumpets in the hands of every single man, it doesn't look like they have three companies of 100 men each. It looks like they have 300 companies of 100 men each. Do you see? Now, since the trumpets are for the leaders, since the torches are for the leaders, and they've surrounded the entire Midianite camp, the Midianites are in the middle of this bowl, in the middle of this camp, and completely surrounded them, they see 300 torches and they hear 300 trumpets. And since only the leaders have the torches and the trumpets, that means there are thousands upon thousands, so many people. And when they shout out for the, the sword for the Lord and for Gideon, they think they're being charged, and the Midianites freak out and in the process because there's Midianites and Amalekites and so many different people that they don't even know who's who they don't know who they're fighting against and it says this Verse 22, when the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. The army fled to Beth Shittah toward Zerarah, as far as the border of Abel Meholah near Tabith. Israelites near Naphtali, Asher, and all Manasseh were called out and they pursued the Midianites. Gideon, uh, Gideon sent messengers throughout the hill country of Ephraim saying, come down against the Midianites and seize the waters of the Jordan ahead of them as far as Beth Barah. So all the men of Ephraim were called out and they seized the waters of the Jordan as as far as Beth Barah. They also captured two of the Midianite leaders, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb and Zeb at the winepress of Zeb. They pursued the Midianites and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon, who was by the Jordan. And I know some of you are thinking, that's just disgusting. That's just gross, bringing them back the heads. But you have to realize this amazing victory, the Israelites killed almost no one. Everybody, just all of the Midianites and the other people, they just all killed each other because they were so, I mean, it was the middle of the night. They were afraid. They didn't know what was going on. They just all killed each other while the Israelites stood outside and watched until the leaders, Oreb and Zeb. And I find it interesting that Oreb is killed at, you know, his place that they name after him, but Zeb is killed in a wine press. Such an interesting bookend to the story, don't you think? I mean, it all started with Gideon hiding in a wine press, and it ends with the enemy hiding 
in a wine press. And Israelites being victorious. I'd like to end the story here. Because it's a great place to end and just say God and Gideon are victorious together. They're like buddies on the battlefield. Victorious together. What a great story. What an amazing story. It's a, it's a good thing for Sunday school. Maybe depending, for junior hires, the, the decapitation might be a good thing. But for the elementary school kids, you just kind of skip over the decapitation part really at the end. And you just say they, they won the victory at the wine press. You know, Gideon starts in a wine press, ends in a wine press. It's just so poetic. It's just so beautiful. I'd love to end the story there. In fact, because it's already 1123, I'm tempted to just go ahead and end the story there but then we run into the problem that you've had all your life when you think of Gideon if you've ever heard this story before. Gideon's such a great guy. But he's got a real bad dark side. I want to show you chapter 8. Now the Ephraimites asked Gideon, why have you treated us like this? Why didn't you call us when we went to fight Midian? when you went to fight Midian. And they challenged him vigorously. In other words, they're saying, why did you go fight with only 300 people? You could have let us join. Instead, you called us in at the end. But he answered them, what have I accomplished compared to you? Aren't the gleanings of Ephraim's grapes better than the full grape harvest of Abiezer? In other words, what he said is, your whole tribe is better than my clan. Your whole tribe is better than my clan. So you're all right. And they loved it. They liked it. God gave Oreb and Zeb, the Midianite leaders, into your hands. What was I able to do compared to you? At this, their resentment against him subsided. Okay, so now he's friends with the Ephraimites. That's good, but look what happens next. Verse 4. Gideon and his 300 men, exhausted yet keeping up the pursuit, came to the Jordan and crossed it. He said to the men of Succoth, Leave, Give my troops some bread. They're worn out, and I'm still pursuing Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. But the officials of Succoth said... Do you already have the hands of Ziba and Zalmunna in your possession? Why should we give bread to your troops? In other words, have you already killed them or have you already captured them? If you haven't and you've only got 300 people, you might lose this battle and then those guys are going to come back and get us. So we're not going to help you against the big powerful dudes. Then Gideon replied, Just for that, when the Lord has given Ziba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will tear your flesh with desert thorns and briars. These are his, these are his compatriots, his relatives. Verse 8, From there he went up to Peniel and made the same request of them, but they answered as the men of Succoth had. So he said to the men of Peniel, When I return in triumph, I will tear down this tower. Now Ziba and Zalmunna were in Karkor with a force of about 15,000 men. All that were left of the armies of the eastern peoples, 120,000 swordmen had fallen. Gideon went up by the route of the nomads east of Noba and Jogbeha and attacked the unsuspecting army. Ziba and Zalmunna, the two kings of Midian, fled, but he pursued them and captured them, routing their entire army. Gideon, son of Joash, then returned from the battle by the pass of Herez. He caught a young man of Succoth and questioned him, and the young man wrote down for him the names of the 77 officials of Succoth, the elders of the town. Then Gideon came and said to the men of Succoth, Here are Ziba and Zalmunna, about whom you taunted me by saying, Do you 
already have the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna in your possession. Why should we give bread to your exhausted men? He took the elders of the town and taught the men of Succoth a lesson by punishing them with desert thorns and briars. He also pulled down the tower of Peniel and killed the men of the town. Peniel and Succoth are, are his relatives' towns. They're Israelite towns. And he whips the leaders of Succoth with briars, but then he, he pulls down a tower in Peniel and kills all the men there just because they hadn't helped him with some bread. Then he asked Ziba and Zilmona, who are still alive, by the way, what kind of men did you kill at Tabor? Men like you, they answered, each one with the bearing of a prince. Can you hear the flattery in their voice? You're like a prince. You're almost a king, Gideon. Have you ever thought about being a king? We're kings. We know how kingships work. Gideon, all of the men that we killed at Tabor looked like you. They were princely people. And Gideon's response is, those were my brothers, the sons of my own mother, as surely as the Lord lives. If you had spared their lives, I would not kill you. Turning to Jether, his oldest son, he said, kill them. But Jether did not draw his sword because he was only a boy and was afraid. Zeban Zalmunna said, come do it yourself. As is the man, so is his strength. So Gideon stepped forward and killed them and took the ornaments off their camel's necks. And I'm just like, Something weird is happening here. But I'm going to go ahead and read you the rest of the story, and then I'm, going to, then I'm going to show you some of the things here that are just really sad. Keep going, verse 22. Then the Israelites said to Gideon, Rule over us, you, your son, and your grandson, because you've saved us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And he said, I do have one request. Now, I wish I could stop this whole thing at verse 23. Because up till verse 23, I can give Gideon a pass. That he is, he is a violent guy, and he's acting out some revenge. But then again, he's a judge, and the judges all have some kind of a dark side. And then at the end of verse 23, they say, Gideon, would you be our king? And he says, nope, God's your only king. And I think that would be a great place to end, but it keeps going. Verse 24, and he said, I do have one request that each of you give me an earring from your share of the plunder. It was the custom of the Ishmaelites to wear gold earrings. And so they had conquered these other people. They had gathered their plunder. Now they all had earrings and gold and other things. And Gideon just says, I just want one earring from each of you, one earring from each of your plunder. And it's like, okay, fine. Maybe Gideon does deserve a little bit of a reward, but look what happens next. They answered, we'll be glad to give them. So they spread out a garment and each of them threw a ring from his plunder onto it. The weight of the gold rings he asked for came to 1,700 shekels, not counting the ornaments, the pendants, and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian or the chains that were on their camels' necks. Gideon made the gold into an ephod, which he placed in Ophrah, his town. All Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there and became, it became a snare to Gideon and his family. There are two really big smudges on Gideon's life that show up in chapter 8. And the first one I don't know if you noticed. But maybe you did. Did the Lord speak once 
in chapter 8. All of a sudden in chapter 8, the voice of the Lord is silent. And the only voice we hear is Gideon's. Who decides whether or not some enemy kings live or die? In chapter 8, it's Gideon. Who decides how to treat the people of Ephraim? Gideon. Who decides how to treat the people of Succoth? Gideon. Who decides how to treat the people of Peniel? Gideon. Who decides if the people of Peniel deserve to live or die? Gideon. Who commands his own son to commit murder, not having been part of the battle at all? Gideon. Somehow, at the end of the incredible victory where 300 men rout thousands, the voice of God stops and the voice of Gideon is the only one we hear. That's significant because I'm going to say the main end of this story is the contrast between what Gideon says and what he does. They say, Gideon, we want you to be our king. And he says, oh no, you'll only have one king. His name is the Lord. And that sounds so wonderful. It sounds so noble. It sounds so honorable. It sounds, sounds like a, a person of true faith. But Gideon was only using a show of faith to give him the power of a king. And I know what you're saying. You're saying, oh, come on, Jeff. That's a little harsh, don't you think? I mean, it's, it's a little harsh for you to cast Gideon in chapter 8 as, you know, just a, something really bad is going on with him. Isn't that a little bit harsh? What did he use the gold to make again? He made the gold into an ephod. An ephod? He made the gold into an ephod. I mean, can you believe it? I, I have no idea the gall, the absolute arrogance of a person who would take gold from this battle and make it into an ephod of all things. Oh, that's right. Maybe you've forgotten what an ephod is. An ephod is an apron. Uh, you can think of it like a poncho. It's a piece of fabric that is long enough to come all the way down from your neck to in front of you and behind you to, your, to the floor with a hole in the neck. And so the ephod is like an apron on both sides of you. Hole in the neck, and you know it's a flap in the front and a flap in the back. And you're like, okay, fine. So he made a, a golden ephod. Well, maybe if he's going to make um, a clothing item from this gold, then that's going to take a whole lot of effort and time and everything. And I don't know why you would want to make a clothing item out of gold like that. And if he wanted to make a clothing item out of gold, maybe he would wear it or something. But it doesn't tell us he, he wore it. It just tells us he put it in his hometown and, and people went to it. So it sounds like it, it must have been a solid object, not a fabric object made out of gold. And so why would a person make, make an ephod out of gold? And you've you got to remember the ephod is the absolute most important garment worn by the priest. Now, I'm not saying it's the most important in terms of like spiritual significance. It's the most important in terms of the one that's mentioned the most in the Bible. 
You see, the priest of Israel would wear robes and he would wear a turban and he would wear a belt. But over top of the robes, over top of the tunic and the robes was an ephod. And then there was a belt that holds the ephod so that he's covered in the front, covered in the back. The robe covers him on the side. The ephod is the thing that David danced in when he was dancing before the Lord, if you know that story. But it's the priest garment that would cover over all the other garments except for one. On the on the ephod, right in front of the ephod, there would be a breastplate that God had had them make, a little breastplate, a little thing that would kind of go over the neck and hang down right here. And the breastplate would contain the Urim and the Thummim. And so anyone who saw the ephod of a priest wouldn't be thinking of just the fabric that was going over, you know, like the poncho. They would be thinking of the whole thing where it's the ephod with this breastplate on front of it. And inside of it is the Urim and the Thummim, two objects that people would use to determine if God was really speaking to them. They would say, God, if you're really speaking to me, then do this. And they would throw the stones or whatever they are. God, if you're really speaking to me, do this. And is it any, is it any wonder that Gideon, the guy who would use a fleece to test God, later on would make an idol out of the ephod and the elements in the ephod? But the other thing you need to realize is that there's no priest in this ephod. It's just a gold priestly item. As if Gideon is saying, I know the voice of God, and if you want to hear it, you've got to come to me. The ephod the symbol of God's word to his people, the symbol of God's yes or no, the symbol of God's guidance, the symbol of God's presence, the symbol of everything that God is to the people religiously is in Gideon's possession. Oh yes, I will not be your king. I will not be your king. Only the Lord will be your king. You must follow the Lord. And the Lord follows me. This situation at the end is so incredibly sad, but it doesn't even get the slightest bit better. Let's finish up the chapter real quick. Thus Midian was subdued before the Israelites and did not raise its head again. During Gideon's lifetime, the land had peace 40 years. Well, that sounds all right. Jeroboam, son of Joash, went back home to live. He had 70 sons of his own, for he had many wives. His concubine, who lived in Shechem, also bore him a son, whom he named Abimelech. Gideon, son of Joash, died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of his father, Joash, and Ophrah of the Abizrites. No sooner had Gideon died than the Israelites again prostituted themselves to the Baals. They set up Belberit as their god and did not remember the Lord their god who had rescued them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. They also failed to show any loyalty to the family of Jerobbaal, that is Gideon, in spite of all the good things he had done for them. But here at the end, There's so many things there just in that little section. 
that is incredibly sad. He's got 70 sons. How many wives do you have to have over 40 years to get 70 boys? Seventy sons. Only kings back then would have that many wives. He had a harem for himself. He had 70 boy sons, not to mention all of the sons that he had with his concubines, like the one named Abimelech. And you don't know, but Abimelech is another one of these words that any Israelite would be absolutely out of their minds to name their son. Because the words Abimelech come from the Hebrew word Abi, which means my father, and then the ending, which could mean one of two things. It either means Molech, the god of some of the ancient people, and so the name Abimelech is my father is Molech, or it could mean Melech, the king, and it could be my father, the king. And the word father, we know sometimes refers to God. And so even if it's that, it's my God is Molech or my God is king. The only one of those that could work with Yahweh is my God is king. But then the other two, my father is Molech or my father is king. That means Gideon named his son, my dad's the king. That is a weird name to give your son if you're trying to not be the king. Oh, and one more thing I will say about that. The word Abimelech shows up three times in the Bible, and every single time it is a Philistine king. Well, I guess there is this one, which is the middle one, and next week you'll hear him become a king. I want to give you just something to end this whole thing with and to take it home with you. A lot of people love the story of Gideon. They love the story of zero to hero. They love the story of a guy who's cowardly, a guy who's kind of on his own and God comes up to him. And it's true. All that encouraging stuff is true. If God is with you, you're a hero. With God, even I, even I will be a hero. If God is with me, if I'm with God, then yes, even I will be a hero. But once Gideon got a little taste of himself, his own pride, his own confidence, his own arrogance, and he stopped paying attention to the voice of God, his life goes downhill. And it's a lesson that without God, even I will fall. I want you to take encouragement from the story of Gideon. The problem is I also want you to take warning from the story of Gideon. I want you to recognize from the story of Gideon That if God is with you, you are a hero. But I want you to recognize from the story of Gideon that if God is not with you, you're in danger of so much. This week, I want to invite you to start every single day by saying, God, I want to hear your voice. God, I want to hear your leading. God, I want to have the courage to follow you where you lead to follow you how you lead. And then I want to encourage you to live that way all day long. It's such a shame that Gideon would turn into a person who with a show of faith would take on the authority of a king. Not so with you. Not so with any of us. May we be people 
who don't just offer a show of our faith so that we can gain authority or power or whatever it is we want. May we be people who live the life of faith, knowing that with God, even I am a hero. And without God, even I could fall. Let me pray for you. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And his plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.